1: On today's episode, i speak to a man that was there at the start of the British music explosion, the uprise of prog rock and the roar and the snarl of British heavy metal. He was a friend of John Bonham's and Mark Boland's and a friend of anybody that likes music. He's a journalist and author. Of course, it's the one and only Chris Welsh.
0: Welcome to the podcast. If you like us, leave a comment below, subscribe to our YouTube channel now
1: and make sure you never miss another upload it's time to bring you yet
0: another amazing episode chatting tracks with rob the face for radio burgess
1: hi it's robbie from chatting tracks and welcome to today's episode if you've not done it yet hit that cheeky like button so you can share and spread the love about the show and the podcast i'd really appreciate it It definitely helps me out sorry to ask you but if you don't ask you don't get so you know give it a cheeky like On today's episode, I've got the fantastic Chris Welsh. This guy's interviewed everybody from Lulu, the Shangri-Las, the Yardbirds, Led Zeppelin, Genesis, Iron Maiden, Queen, the Kinks. And I see I could do the list on and on and on. There isn't anybody this man's not spoken to. Chris Welsh is probably the music journalist, music journalist. He's been on tour with many bands, including Led Zeppelin, and he's written about 40 books. All the links will be available in the description so you can find out more about his books and his website. If you go on there, there's a fantastic picture of him and Keith Moon from The Who, for instance. We had a fantastic chat. I could have spoken to him for absolutely hours and at the minute is in the process of writing an autobiography. So let's hope that comes out soon because that will be brilliant. Anyway, enough of me waffling. Enjoy the episode. Chatting tracks. Let's talk music. If we can sort of go back if that's all right to the start, Sure. Pretty much of your musical history. Was your parents
0: into music? Did you live in a musical household or anything? Yes. My parents were interested in music and uh, <clears throat> I grew up in Stratford in East London in a flat and uh, I discovered later, while we were in this crowded flat full of furniture and an old gramophone and lots of old instruments, violins, and uh, a piano accordion, and my parents didn't want to play them anymore. <clears throat> it was much later, I realized, because they'd actually been bombed out, I think, that they, they had a house full of stuff, and they ended up in this tiny three-room flat and uh, uh, in Stratford, as I say, and it was all pretty grim, and it was actually during the war, I was born in 1941. So I do remember bits of the war, growing up in an air raid shelter, that sort of thing. And music was very important to my mum and dad. My dad played the piano a bit, very badly, very loudly, I should say. (laughs) He used to hammer on the piano. My mother played the violin, and my older brother, George, he played violin as well. But because of the war, there was a lot of stress, and somehow they stopped trying to play it. But I uh, listened to music a lot, and uh, we only had a radio, and... uh, We listened to uh, BBC Radio, and the the hit record of the day for me later was Teresa Brewer's Music, 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 which I don't know if you remember that. Put another nickel in the Nickelodeon, and I loved that song. And I used to whistle it. Uh, Although I couldn't play the violin or any other instrument, I could whistle very well, very loudly. (laughs) uh, Growing up in London in the 40s and 50s, uh, the streets were very quiet, and uh, you could whistle uh, while you worked. (laughs) making a big echoing noise. Uh, I'd whistle all the hits, all the favourite hit songs. Did you ever try
1: to play an instrument at all? Did you ever pick one of those violins up and have a go, or was it just not for you?
0: No, I was very keen on the idea. In fact, when I went to my first school, which was St. James's Road School in Stratford, and uh, it was actually the infants class, and the first day, they had a percussion band, and uh, the teachers were a bit, uh, I suppose, were under pressure. And they didn't want to choose children to choose a particular instrument, so they they threw them all on the floor in a heap in the hall, I remember this. And everybody had to scramble to pick up an instrument. Of course, I wanted the snare drum. There was a big snare drum right in the middle. Dashed to that, and some bully pushed me out of the way and grabbed the snare drum. And I I was only about (laughs) four or five, I suppose. And I ended up with a triangle, which I hated. (laughs) I've always taken a dislike to triangles ever since. So that was my first instrument, the triangle. Very uh, unsatisfying instrument, man.
1: I think if you write your autobiography, that should be the title. I've always took a dislike to triangles. So yeah, that's a good idea. Good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it's very frustrating. Just one note, ping, I said. <laughs>
1: yeah. Rock triangle's not really there, is it? Um, was, play <laughs> drums, yeah. Sorry, carry on. No, no, that's fine. Um, so you, <laughs> you dabbled in the triangle, and that's as far as you got. Well, was you sort of interested in writing at this time as well? Was writing always in the ether as a young boy?
0: Well, yes, writing was very important to me right from the start. And reading, of course, my I was uh mm, yeah. fortunate. My mother encouraged me to read, and I could read before I went to school, which is pretty good. I remember we used to go on the bus. They had trolley buses in Stratford with adverts inside, and uh, I'd read out the adverts aloud to all the passengers showing off that I could read. And one of them was, uh, I drink Idris when I is dry, which was an advert for lemonade. I still remember that, amazing. (laughs) So I could read and write very early on, and my mother used to read me lots of books. And also, my parents had this, inherited this, in this great pile of furniture in our three-room flat, uh, was um, a sideboard. I opened it one day, I was sitting on the floor, and it was full of books. And I grabbed a book out and started reading it. And it turned out it was The Idiot by Dostoevsky. So I got as far as one or two chapters and then gave up. But uh, <laughs> just recently, I thought, I remembered this. And I got The Idiot by Dostoevsky uh, in a hardback, uh, a new version. And I actually completed reading it. So after one of these years, I actually finished that book. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> I did, actually. Yeah, it was astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> but I used to love comedy and school books as well. One of the books I read, because we had all these old books my dad had, and a lot of the pages were singed because they'd been rescued from bombed-out libraries when the books got burnt and damaged. And I used to wonder why all the pages had brown edges. <laughs> it was explaining why they were rescued from a fire. Oh, great. And uh, one of them was called Fifth Form at St. Dominic's, which is uh, all about public school. It was just quite funny, really, because I went to you know, an ordinary working class school. I was reading about all these posh lads at the public school. And one of the things they did was to start their own newspaper, a school newspaper. And I thought, what a great idea. And uh, so I did that myself. But when I got to the primary school, uh, I started my own school newspaper. And I love the idea of newspapers and writing. So that's where I started.
1: That's fantastic. And at this point, was sort of um, your sort of, private music collection building was you buying records at this time did you have money to buy records
0: well uh back in as i say when i was still very young and living in stratford we did have a great big gramophone, and it? it was uh, an hmv wind-up plot work with two little doors in the front you open out that was the speaker and the spring wasn't very good it used to groan and made <laughs> it sounds like a, sounded like a sort of uh, a cross-channel ferry engine you know sort of grinding <laughs> away and uh my brother used to uh, he was always teasing me, and he said, ah, oh, look, see that, that little door there? If you open that door, we've got a record on. He said, if you open the doors, you'll see a little band inside playing. It was the <laughs> Lennon. And, of course, I opened the doors expecting to see this group playing inside. It was a big <laughs> wind-up, literally a wind-up, a Gramophone <laughs> wind-up. <laughs> That's amazing. But, but the first record I played, and I really liked, actually, was uh, pre-war George Fongby. Remember George Formby? Uh, uh, I do, yeah. I have a cult following for George Formby now. One of his biggest fans was, of course, George Harrison, I discovered later. My first record I really listened to was called, uh, it was an instrumental. It's called Swing It George. And uh, he was playing Tiger Rag, wasn't singing, playing this incredible ukulele solo to Tiger Rag, a very fast jazz ching. And uh, I always thought later he was the Jimi Hendrix of the ukulele. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i love that what i didn't realize about george um i watched a program on him recently was how filthy he was some of his lyrics were really filthy they were sort of R- you know a little bit of was it little bit of bright and rock and all this sort of stuff oh yeah
0: funny enough, i thought you meant george harrison then <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, george Fonger's lyrics were very filthy that's true yeah, Raucous, I think. yeah for, for the times it's very funny yeah, yeah. did he ever get banned did he get banned was- for that yeah, From radio, I think he was. Yeah, I think uh, they wouldn't play some of these more raucous numbers. Well, he's a great entertainer, really, and very out of date now, of course, when you see the movies that he was in. But I just mm. love the sound of this jazz music. That's the first time I heard it with the trombone player playing Tiger Rack. And uh, so I started listening to jazz. And by the way, we moved from Stratford to Catford. We went up market <laughs> into a house. We actually had a house and uh, we took the gramophone with us. And my brother said, This is terrible. Let's grab a paint one day and it stopped working. So we actually got an electric turntable, plugged it into the wireless and we could play proper records. LPs and EPs were coming in. So, so yeah, and my brother was a big jazz fan. He loved Duke Ellington, and Count Basie and uh, I listened to
1: all of that. I mean jazz is an interesting format to listen to, isn't it? Like as you're saying, when you you were younger, there was a lot of it around. And there's less so now. Good. And I think a lot of musicians were really influenced by jazz, even the Beatles to a degree. I think a lot of them were really influenced, but sort of subconsciously influenced by it with the time changes and the movement. It's just a shame there's not enough
0: jazz around today, really. Yes, that's true. Yes, jazz was a big part of our life in the 50s and 60s for so young people. They were, I remember we were all teenagers when I discovered jazz properly. And it was the cool music. The first mods, actually. Were modern jazz fans, that's where the phrase came from, and the whole kind of uh, took phrase mod. Well, because the mods changed, and when they, they discovered rhythm and blues and rock and roll music, so but originally, they you were to be a modern jazz fan and you'd be listening to Jerry Mulligan or Dave Brubeck, they were the mods. Yeah.
1: It's amazing because when you look at a lot of like me looking back on documentaries now, a lot of them are ex-jazz um, clubs that these early bands started in, like the Beatles and the Who. And the, they're yeah. always, you know, we started in this club, but we weren't allowed to play because we were rock. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, true. I think the Cavern, yeah. yeah, the Cavern was a jazz club, wasn't it? And all that sort of stuff. And it's yeah. amazing that they had to go.
0: Yeah. Sorry. yeah, the Beatles are a bit hostile to jazz, were not they? Uh, or trad jazz because they thought they were being uh, not allowed to play in, in the club. Or they had to fight for space, I think, to uh, supersede the trad bands that played there regularly so John Lennon in particular I don't think he liked trad bands oh shall I tell you about my skiffle experience yes please yeah yeah well that was uh, the next big thing listening to the radio people criticised the BBC a lot saying they didn't encourage music actually they did they were very good playing the latest music for teenagers as they called it uh, when you got (laughs) home from school there was a program that you could hear and I turned it on immediately I think it was on the light program I um, got back from school one day, and I heard this incredible record. Uh, it was Rock Island Line by Lonnie Dunnigan. I'd never heard anything like it, this kind of a narrative blues song with a really exciting climax. And uh, the whole thing just blew me away. And when I went to school, the next day, everybody was talking about this extraordinary record they'd heard on the radio. And of uh, and course, we discovered it was called Skiffle. And although Lonnie didn't invent Skibble, he really discovered that. And he was the first revivalist. So he introduced thousands, maybe millions of uh, British young kids to that kind of music. We discovered the blues and, uh, and all the other genres of music. Thanks to Lonnie, I have to say it was Time. And uh, of course, when we discovered that you could play this music yourself, and uh, all you needed was a washboard, uh, T yeah. chest bass and some acoustic guitars. And <laughs> within days, there were groups being formed, and, uh, and my mates formed a group. and We called ourselves the Catford Skiffle Kings. That was our name. I mean. <laughs> and I, I was back to square one because uh, I didn't play the triangle this time, but I had to play the washboard, which was even, well, a bit better, <laughs> a bit of an improvement on the triangle. And my mum gave me all these. Um, she still had a washboard, you see. That's what was used to the dry, dry clothes with, really. Scrub them, that's right. So we, uh, she gave me all this collection of thimbles, and you could scrub the washboard and get a percussive sound. So it's like, like a drum, really. What I love about um, Skiffle is, obviously, a lot of bands, yet
1: yeah, again, we're going back to the Beatles, sorry, they started out as a Skiffle band, and then, you know, many years later, you get someone like Mumford & Sons that come out and do the same thing and they brand them as revolutionary
0: <laughs> yes i was a surprised at that it's all been done about 50 years ago yeah fifty it longer
1: <laughs> well i didn't think it would work you know 60 years later then all of a sudden everybody's all over it and it's now yeah.
0: but you didn't get the revolution again of people picking up the same Wouldn't. sort of instruments did you Showed it you how good really cool it was or oh, well an impression it made because <laughs> it, it was uh, in so many ways Skiffle was very important whether the music was brilliant or not you know it was um Encourage everybody to want to play an instrument and listen to music. And My friends at school, we couldn't afford a guitar. They actually made them in woodwork glass. Can you imagine oh. making guitars, their own guitar? And uh, this That's tea brilliant. chest bass, where you had a bit, uh, literally, you could get a tea chest in those days. That's where they stored the tea <laughs> in your local shop, <laughs> loose tea. And you stuck a broom handle in it and tied a piece of rope or string uh, into the box. And you could hammer away on the string and change the note by moving the broom handle. And I had to wow. carry this thing. That was another drawback <laughs> of being in a skiffle group. You had to carry all the gear. Walking down the street with a washboard and a tea chest base. I was much <laughs> embarrassed. <laughs> you should have done the harmonica. It would be a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I did get a harmonica later. No.
1: <laughs> so you, is it right you, you got your first sort of writing job at 16 after seeing Louis Armstrong. Is that right?
0: Well, yeah. How it worked out was, uh, well, by, by the time I went to secondary school, I was... Um, Editing the school magazine and a classroom magazine. So I was doing a weekly and a yearly magazine. And I was known for writing, which was great. I got a prize for writing, presented by Field Marshal Montgomery. <laughs> wow. The school prize giving. <laughs> so I won first for that. And uh, I loved writing. And when I uh, was about to leave school, you had to go to the um, uh, employment bureau. Uh, Careers advice, that's what it was, and, and I, they said, well, what do you want to do when you leave school? I didn't do particularly well, I only got English stuff, you know, A-levels, O-levels, and I said, well, I want to be a, a reporter, I'd like to be a Fleet Street reporter, and they said, oh, they laughed, and they gave me a leaflet on what to do, the job I should go for, and it was a mastic asphalt lathe operative. What <laughs> hell was that? And I realized it meant laying tarmac on the streets, going around laying a hot tar, so, well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, my dad was outraged, and he actually uh, looked in the classified ads and found there was a job going for a Fleet Street editorial assistant, and uh, it was I was only 16, and I joined the Scotsman newspaper in Fleet Street, and that was an incredible job, really. I don't know whether I appreciated it fully at the time because I wanted to be a reporter, and I thought I was getting the tea and uh, doing all the odd jobs in the office but one day they said uh, oh you can because uh, they knew I was always sitting at the tight writer writing stuff She said oh you can go and review this show there's a show on in Kilburn uh, going on and it's Louis Armstrong's All Stars I went and I wrote a piece and they published it so that's my first piece in a newspaper was you know, it being at that gig was, was that the sort of
1: light bulb moment for you where you thought like music generally is the way forward for me or were you just covering something
0: no, it was a light bulb movement. Yeah, I was very proud and pleased. I didn't get the byline. You know, it just appeared in uh, Louis Armstrong the GOMOT. And uh, I often used to wonder what the, uh, the Scottish readers up in Edinburgh or Glasgow would make of it. Now, that's 16-year-old office boy. was pontificating away about the importance of Louis Armstrong. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it gave me a taste for it. And they're very encouraging. Uh, and I worked there for three years. And Fleet Street then was just so exciting. I went to every aspect of it. You'd go every day, go into all the the national offices, pick up coffee and photographs and deliver stuff. So I knew the inside of the Daily Express, Daily Mail, and the Mirror, the Times, and they're all different. And the Evening News had about seven editions a day, and you'd have to go in and get the front page before anybody else, rip it off the the hot press, hot metal. And uh, I remember once, the Evening News was so intense, and it's on the top floor. The print room. And I went out yeah. there to get the front page, the latest one, which would be wet off the <laughs> stone. And there were these two guys fighting. They were rolling around on the floor fighting each other. And it was the sub-editor and one of the printers. And you weren't allowed to touch the stone. Union rules. And if you dare touch it, you'd be in trouble. And they are actually punching each other, rolling on the floor. <laughs> when I arrived, yeah, it was very scary yeah that's a great experience i loved it and it gave me an encouraging
1: you know to want to be a reporter yeah it does sound like an amazing training ground um i I think nowadays a lot of people like you had that experience people don't have that anymore because people sit at home on the computer they don't have that experience where you're mingling with people you're learning as you go you make mistakes and you learn there seems to be no mistake room for error anymore and i think that's that's a real shame that this stuff isn't around
0: Absolutely true. Yes, the newspaper industry then was keen. You know, everybody read newspapers and there were dozens of them. And it was great training for me. And of course, I experienced going to the House of Commons and the operating the switchboard. I remember the switchboard got into chaos one day. I was answering all the phone calls and this voice was shouting at me. He said, I want to speak to the editor. And I was trying to pipe him in. It's a PBX old fashioned switchboard. I said, Yes, sir. What's your name? He said, Lord Boothby. He said, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and That's I had to way. take coffee over the phone uh, headphones on and uh, type all the yeah. sports reports and one of them was golf from uh, I think it's Southampton or somewhere down on the coast and there's, the chief Scotsman golf correspondent was reading out his report to me which I had to type and he kept saying Birdie, Birdie <laughs> well, I had to ask him five or six times was what, he saying and of course Birdie <laughs> is a a golfing expression, which I had no idea how to spell it or what he meant. <laughs> wasn't crazy. too happy with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then uh, was it from there you went to the Kentish Times? Yes, that right?
0: that's right. Because uh, there were about six of us uh, uh, young uh, office assistants, editorial assistants was our title, which went running back across the police street with a big jug, of a filthy jug of tea which nobody complained, cleaned, and you had to give it to all the reporters. So you got to know all the reporters. And wow. all the uh, kids on my, uh, at that time, were all about 16, 17, and they all ended up in the press. One of my friends, Ted, actually. And uh, I met him years and years later. I said, how did you get on? He said, oh, I was the sports editor of the Daily Mirror. So that was a good start. <laughs> and he just retired. So. <laughs> oh, fantastic. But uh, I started writing off for jobs on my uh, local paper, local papers, First one I had was from Scotland. It was in uh, Arbroath or somewhere. Uh, no, Oban, out in the wilds. <laughs> and I discovered that it meant commuting from London to Scotland, which I didn't fancy. <laughs> they offered me a job, and uh, the, the Oban Times, but I turned it down. And then, then eventually, I got a job on the uh, Heat Observer, which was part of the Kentish Times series, and that was great. I worked there for three years, and uh, that's wonderful. That's a really good experience because you got used to interviewing people. I remember, the first, shall I tell you uh, what it was like? On, Please do. Yeah, sure. Well, the first day, uh, we had the lovely office in Bexley. In those days, the uh, local press had a big readership and covered lots of, the whole of South East London and Kent. It's our, our group from uh, Woolwich to uh, Del- to Dartford, I think, Orpington to uh, Eltham. And we covered everything that happened. So I and you get to know more about that area of the town and the people and anybody who actually lived there. Like, I knew the mayor of all the towns. I'd go to the fire station, the police, the hospitals, the mental of the hospital, courts, uh, coroner's courts. I used to cover inquests, and that was uh, pretty shocking, actually, mm. going to, uh, because nobody bothers to do that. But I, I would discover... Terrible things. Shall I tell you about inquest writing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested now, yeah. But uh, (laughs) I discovered one thing you should never do is have uh, a chip pan fryer in your home. Um, People used to make their own chips in boiling hot fat and it caught endless fires. And you go to the fire station, uh, anything to report? Yes, chip pan fire, house burnt down, housewife burnt. And there'd be some dreadful thing. And so they banned it, I think, or discouraged it. Yeah, it was great fun being on a little paper. But the other interesting thing, aspect, apart from all that, going to the courts and uh, um, the big crime wave in Bexley Heath was when uh, there was a bank robbery. And all right, It was right next door to our office. But All the staff had <laughs> chosen to go to the pub for lunch. We <laughs> were all sitting in the pub. I have to tell you, the reason we were in the pub was it had a great jukebox, and one of the records that was playing on the jukebox I'd never heard before, and it was Love Me Do." By the Beatles. First time I ever heard it. I thought, what an amazing record. We all loved it. And that was the start of Beatlemania. But at the same time, while we were all out of the office, our secretary came running into it. Where are you? Where have you been? All the national newspapers are ringing up. They want a story. it has been a bank robbery next door. And the bank was next, literally next to our office. (laughs) Armed robbery. We'd missed the whole thing. We were listening to the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, what a way to go. Funny, I'm talking of the chip pan thing. I remember... As a kid in the 80s, they still had the adverts for those.
0: She Where, did. Um, Yeah. Yeah, my mum yeah. had a chip. And they were dangerous, you know, full of boiling fat. And if they chipped yeah. over they, and fell on the gas, then you, there's a whole lot of go up, set fire to the ceiling. You know, yeah, so, and, of course, people tried to put them out of the water and some of damp cloth. And, and that was a, yeah. a regular occurrence. The other terrible thing about Inquest was the roads were appalling. There was a road mm. called the A2, which is still there. It's now a motorway. But it was a three-lane road, and in the middle was an overtaking lane that worked both ways. So that's <laughs> a recipe for <laughs> total disaster. <laughs> at <laughs> night in fog, you would find another car coming straight towards you, at a combined speed of about 60 or 70 miles an hour, head-on crazy. Yeah.
1: I mean, it sounds like it was an amazing journey. And then when you was at the Kentish Jumps, you, you interviewed the Rolling Stones. Is that right as well?
0: Yes, well, the Rolling Stones were our local, uh, local band. They uh, suddenly emerged. This is about sixty one, sixty two. 62, that period. And uh, the whole R&B scene was taking off. And I loved r and B. I I went out and bought Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley LPs and uh, listened to all the bands. And the Stones I went to see playing at Greenwich Town Hall. And, uh-huh. of course, they had a lot of aggro with the audience. Or the Teds, or the Teddy Boys, as we used to still call them. <laughs> didn't like mick jagger and they were shouting oi get your ear cut and mick said what i look like you which i thought was rather good (laughs) but i did write about them. i did a big piece on them, but i didn't actually interview them for some reason i don't know how i i failed to interview mick and keith um but yeah i did a piece on this great new band local band i think they're already out on the road and it's difficult to get to them from a local newspaper point of view so, uh, and then uh, people said to me, "Well, oh, you're writing about Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Rolling Stones. You should get a job on a music paper. Uh, this is a friend who told me this. and uh, So, thought, yeah, I've been here for three years and how many more bring and buy sales can you write about? <laughs> or <laughs> Pub charity nights. Very though they were. I mean, one thing about being on the local newspaper is you never had to buy a meal. Every <laughs> night there would be a dinner that you had to be- go. <laughs> Rugby club dinner. Rotary <laughs> club dinner. Uh, and I'd cover like, everything from the Conservative Party functions to the Communist Party. So I'd hear both sides of the story.
1: Yeah. What what I, um, what I found interesting was, um, obviously, Beatleman is obviously around. The Rolling Stones have just appeared as well. And you're then the first sort of wave of music journalists. Yeah. And it's like everybody's finding their way at the same time, which has now left such an impact now. You know, looking back to it then was it one of those things where you realized you were breaking ground or was it just sort of another thing that was happening
0: well the extraordinary thing was in the wake of the Beatles and Stones success the whole British music scene took off and people had to write about that and when I went to Melody Maker I found oh yes I wrote to Melody Maker actually I wrote to the NME first they didn't have a vacancy but Melody Maker did and uh, I realized that the staff on these music papers all quite middle-aged and uh, well they seem old to us but probably in their late 30s 40s and 50s and they'd been writing about music scenes since way back on Melody Maker we had staff who'd been there before the war one of our reporters (laughs) Chris Hayes he'd been writing about (laughs) British dance bands in the 1930s which was fantastic but not very suitable for writing about Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames or uh, you know the animals so uh, they needed a a new young reporter and as I said there was a vacancy and uh, and I went up to, uh, I was offered them an interview, and I went up to Fleet Street, and the nice thing was that Melody Maker's office was in Fleet Street, right opposite the building where I used to work from, uh, in the Scotsman, um, 163 Fleet Street. So I was literally crossing the road, and instead of giving the tea, I was now writing the, the headline stories, the main stories. <laughs> but they gave me a test, first of all, because uh, I sent them cuttings of my stuff about the stones and Bo Diddley, and oh, Jean Vincent was, uh, lived in Dwelling as well, so I wrote about him. Didn't interview him, but I wrote about him. <laughs> so I had this kind of introduction through press cuttings, and uh, the editor then was Jack Hartman and Ray Coleman, the uh, news editor, and they said, right, uh, okay, yeah, we like what you've done, and you've written lots of letters. So I used to write to Mailbag, and they liked my letters for complaining about things. I'm <laughs> <laughs> angry <laughs> with Catford, you yeah. know. <laughs> LP winner I used to win LPs for writing lists so they knew who I was and they said right okay well we'll give you a test um, there's a drummer, famous drummer in London playing with Dave Brubeck. His name's Joe Morello and nobody knows what to ask a drummer uh, we don't have any drummers on the star. Now, I hear you play the drums so could you interview Joe Morello I said yeah great okay who had to be one of my heroes brilliant drummer of course so they sent me off on a Sunday night to uh, a hotel in the West End and I was a bit nervous and Joe Moreau was really charming and very helpful, gave me a good interview and uh, I roasted it up the next morning, delivered it to the paper and they printed it the following Wednesday with a big byline and the headline was a quote from Joe and he said to me, you don't have to be an idiot to play the drums, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, drummers do have a, jazz drummers, they all thought they were sort of lunatics or crazy men yeah that's a public image and joe was a very studious drummer of course with his glasses so that was the headline and they printed it with a byline and that got me the job so thank you joe morella it's
1: amazing i mean jazz yet again as well is another incendiary world like rock and roll where you had
0: you had people like phil
1: seaman that was quite heavily into drugs at the time wasn't he and all that sort of stuff so it was the prerequisite to rock and roll
0: Absolutely, yeah. And uh, of course, all the drummers were the, the best. The British drummers were great. There were loads of great drummers. Phil Seaman, I used to go and see and interview later. And uh, Ronnie Verrell with Ted Heath, who later became famous in The Muppets, I think. He was playing with Buddy Rich, remember that? So we had some great drummers. And uh, of course, they were technically brilliant. And they also taught a lot. And a lot of the young British uh, rock drummers had lessons. They all worked for lessons. And of course, a lot of the Guys that were giving lessons for jazz drummers, so there was a sort of m- mutual respect between them. And mm. uh, although the uh, people like Mitch Mitchell, for example, went for lessons, and with uh, Jim Marshall, who was a singer and jazz drummer, and uh, before building all his noisy amplifiers, so, so uh, yeah, most of the jazz. Uh, of course, later on when I got a job with Melody Maker, um, I would love to write about all the drummers in the band. So they're all my heroes. <laughs> Uh, Ringo <laughs> didn't interview, but I liked his drumming, actually. People were rather yeah. disparaging about Ringo, but he was a great drummer. i was always him about old session men played on the records. Well, maybe they did on one or two, but he was playing there yeah, for sure. Yeah, um,
1: I used to play drums in a band. Did you? Great. Fantastic. Yeah, we used to have the same row with my friends. And really? it was like Ringo knew when not to play. That's yeah. the secret to Ringo's style. He knew when not to play. He didn't fill it up um he didn't fill the song up with drum solos, and you know he only did one, and that was on Abbey Road. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> you know he was <laughs> like, yeah, he yeah. did a great ending to Twist and Shout. Do you remember right at the the last few bars of Twist and Shout, And yeah. drum accent or two? Yeah, yeah. It was great. Yeah but he was
1: just um, it's just different when you look at drummers how different they all are and how unique they all are I think you say you, you're a big fan of drummers I think they must have been a huge fan of you because you noticed them because generally they're just at the back
0: <laughs> you know it's, yes people say that but whenever I used to go to a gig the first person I looked at was ah oh, if they got a good drummer it's going to be a good band <laughs> they make the band <laughs> <That's coughs> including crazy. the Shadows they had great drummers Tony Meehan Brian Bennett and, a, and the Hollies had Bobby Elliot and um fantastic dramas, and uh, i didn't concentrate on writing them i was just doing all the other stuff pop stuff as well but i was yeah. throwing in at the deep end with melody maker because i i then had to design i was indentured uh, that's another great thing about local journalists it's like an apprenticeship you're actually indentured i had to go and see the editor-in-chief and he was very upset that i was leaving because i'd been writing all this stuff for the paper and you know after three years of training they didn't want to lose me but uh I couldn't turn it, they they realised this was the, oh, an offer I couldn't turn it down
1: It must have been an exciting time to be there just with all this stuff going on, then music's now because were they sort of in the press, was music sort of just the sort of sideline part, As people were people actually interested in until you got your Melody, ma- melody Makers and Emmy and stuff like that
0: Yes, I think the Nationals weren't covering so much, well obviously with the Beatles becoming an international phenomenon then they had to write about pop music in a much more detailed way and, get, and the, the Nationals started to get their own reporters don uh, oh, i can't remember his name now huh? don on the daily mirror he was quite famous yeah uh so yeah. the nationals started uh, to uh, realize that they had to the daily mirror to be fair was always supportive of rock and roll. they covered that a lot they they brought uh, bill haley to the country and sponsored his trip over i think
1: back in the yeah
0: 50s but no on the music press the well the the thing to remember about the music press it was very competitive and I joined them the first day. It was a nightmare. Uh, the editor, Ray Coleman, he took no prisoners, and uh, he'd been raised in the provincial press. Very tough editor. He had to be, really, to get the paper out. We well, had, uh, you think it's a weekly paper, and the deadline was uh, Wednesday. And he came in on a Monday, and he had to have all the news and stories written, by at least by Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit of a tall order. <clears throat> My first day, I was used to life on the Local paper, being all very jolly and friendly, sitting in the pub for lunch. Uh, Melody making my first day, I had to do all the news stories, and he said, I want you to get John Lennon. (laughs) Phone him now. Where is he? He's at Heathrow Airport. (laughs) Oh, how do I get him? He phoned the press office at Heathrow and put out a pager message. John Lennon to report immediately to the press office, and uh, and then the grumpy John Lennon would do what? How does it feel to be number one in the charts? Oh, great. <laughs> Fantastic, man. And then he'd rush off and catch the plane <laughs> to New York or whatever he was going <laughs> <laughs> So you have to do all this, and you, you, the editor's breathing over your shoulder, and you've got to type the stories. Not long stories, but get yeah. those news stories out quick. And interviews. One of my first yeah. interviews was with the animals and uh, Ray wow. Coleman, who was very compa- competitive. He liked stirring up trouble. It's a day, It's like a... What would you call it? It's tabloid journalism, that's it. it has got to be an angle <laughs> to the story. It can't just be, my new album is. It's got to be, I hate the bass player. You know that kind of yeah. Surely got to have Yeah. An angle. Descent and rouse. And uh, he said, uh, the animals have just gone to the States after the Stones and the Beatles, and I hear they're a flop. <laughs> he said, you've got to ring Eric Burden and ask him. Oh, oh no, it's just Chandler. So I rang Chaz, and uh, I'd met him before. He's a nice guy, really helpful and funny. He said, oh, I hear the animals have been a bit of a flop in America. Who told you that? <laughs> Don't be soft, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he got, I got an earful from Chaz, daring to suggest the animals were a disaster area in America, which wasn't true. Actually, they were doing quite well. Because they had a number one, didn't they? It's just that incendiary
1: journalism, isn't it? You yeah. Know, throw a bomb in the band and then let's see what happens. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> you, yeah, you have to get a tabloid Sunstar headline Animals Flop Shock Horror, you know, denied <laughs> by Chas Chandler. So, this, this feud thing, it was like developing a feud, which the Nationals still do to this day. They always develop big feuds. One of the feuds I had to develop was Tom Jones and PJ Proby. Right. PJ versus TJ. <laughs> well, yeah, PJ would say, ah, Tom Jones, he can't sing. You know, I'm like Elvis, I can sing like Elvis. You get to quote, man, Tom Jones, well I don't know, he's quite a good singer, but you know, he <laughs> set them up. It's very true. Are we okay just to
1: throw out some names of the speaker, people you spoke to? Is that okay? Just to give yeah, people an sure. idea?
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, in that first week, uh, one of the people, like, bands I interviewed was um, uh, oh, I'll show you. What? Well, the beige Boys, of course. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com.
1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to
0: lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The first wow. week was on the paper. I did the Beach Boys, the animals. I've got cousins. Oh, the Shangri-Las. Do you remember the Shangri-Las? Remember yeah, the wow. Zen? The Rocking Berries, Charlie Watts, Helmut Zacharias, the (laughs) Vinyl Empire, and the Yardbirds were there at Clapton. So that was uh, my first two weeks on the MM.
1: That is crazy. And you spoke to uh, Lulu, Sandy Shaw, Nancy Sinatra, is that right? Paul Simon, PJ Proby, uh, The Animals, The Who, The Small Faces, The Hollies, The Bee Gees, The Moody Blues, Cream. Like all these are, oh, wow. I mean, what a list
0: of people to speak to. It was extraordinary, uh, of course. yeah, because being a weekly, and um, my whole music business was taking off like an explosion. And it was all geared to the, tar- the chart, of course, if you had a hit, you had to be written about. And that helped a lot. Nothing wrong with being in the chart. Although, funnily enough, the old birds, when I interviewed them, in the coffee bars, when I met Eric for the first time, and he was sort of smiling at me and grinning. Because all the, the other guys were going crazy. They thought, you know, uh, why aren't we in a pub, demanding keys <laughs> <laughs> and and uh Eric's looking at me as to say, I'm not with these guys and I realised that even then, this is right early on, he was thinking about needy which he did lay set books.
1: Wow. Did did they um were they sort of when you went into these interviews, was there a sort of I know you sort of had to do the journalist angle as well, like you were saying, a well, bit with yeah. that thingy, but was it pretty much, you know, all the same? Was everyone pretty much down to earth? Was there anyone that was just too wild for you to speak to that you thought, oh, I don't want to get involved in this person or this band? Or,
0: Well, no, uh, not in the early days. Everybody wanted to be in the music press. It was a very prestigious thing, and their, publisher, their publicists and managers were desperate to get them in the paper, and they were fighting for coverage, so it's very important to be in the NME or record mirror or disc or music echo uh, or no sounds then that didn't exist, but or melody maker. And the big battle was between melody maker and the NME. And um, we wanted to get the stories first. And uh, as I say, you had to get a bit of an angle on who was in the chart. It would be a bit boring otherwise to read. So you wanted to make it readable, but the artists themselves, generally speaking, were all very helpful and cooperative. Sometimes they were a bit suspicious <laughs> or they weren't sure quite how to take you. I remember some of the bands, um, uh, the Rocking Berries and mm. uh, uh, Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders. Uh, some of the bands were a little suspicious. Usually the ones from Birmingham, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> bands from up north are a bit suspicious of uh, us <laughs> Southern Jetties asking about their music. <laughs> but the uh, I'll tell you who was really good. Um, the Moody Blues. They were mm. quite tough guys from Birmingham. And I yeah. got on really well with Danny Lane. He's terrific. And, uh, I think there was a guy called Clint Warwick, and because uh, they were long in tooth. Another thing about bands then was often they were much older than they pretended to be. <laughs> Lied about their age, <laughs> <laughs> and you discovered like the bass player might might be in his thirties, really, claimed <laughs> to be twenty two, and they'd been working in factories. So they were quite down to earth guys. They? But once you got past that little barrier. Uh, Get on really well. I was invited to a recording session with mm-hmm. the Moody Blues and, and had Go Now, of course. Wow. And, yeah. uh, I went to the uh, Moody Blues recording session and I forget the name of the uh, producer now, a very famous producer. But uh, the band said, oh, you play the drums. How about you playing, uh, what was it they wanted me to play? I think it was the tambourine or something. <laughs> keep time. Yeah. And I had to keep time with the band. And the producer was shouting, get him out of the studio, he's speeding up.
1: <laughs> I thought <laughs> so he was going to say the triangle.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that was my first attempt at recording in the studio, with the Modi Blues.
1: When you were um, uh, sort of talking to this amazing roster of artists, how did you go in as a journalist? Did you have set questions or were you sort of just going along and see how the conversation went? Or did you have a set 10 questions in your mind that you would always follow for each person? Mm.
0: Well, I usually had, the um, yeah, I'd usually get some guidance in the editor what kind of angle they'd want. But generally speaking, I'd i, I soon understand that, and I could do it myself. And I knew that the bands that I was talking to, and being Melody Maker, which was more of a musician's paper, uh, if I talked to them about their techniques and their uh, ambitions and their attitude to music and their influences, that's what I talked to them about. And then you right. establish a rapport like if you were speaking to Eric you didn't say what's it like having screaming girls chasing you you'd ask him about his blues guitar evidences and they'd appreciate that because a lot of the papers didn't you know mm-hmm. some of them were real pop papers like Ray or Bunty girls papers <laughs> oh there's nothing wrong with that that's great and they'd be on the front cover like the small faces were <laughs> on the cover of the pin-up magazines all the time and they would be tending to ask questions like what did you have for breakfast and what do you think of the latest fashions and uh uh what yes all of that so uh gossip really so <laughs> if i was asking questions about asking the bass player what strings he had he'd be delighted to tell me <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. for a few people on um, or rave would be interested in that kind of technical <laughs> stuff
1: so um obviously you're still there in the 70s and prog rock comes in <laughs> and you spoke to like led zeppelin genesis um and elp and people like that prog rock when it came in from a journalist point of view was it accepted quite well or was it one of those things where people are like that's just too much because it's too in-depth for the audience it wasn't a three-minute single mm. were people enjoying that or was it too much for them at the time
0: yes there was that attitude but remember that it was uh, coincided with the age of the album the lp came out to then lps had been mainly collections of hits uh, chart-busting hit collections, which was great. Right? Even the Beatles did that. I think, uh, but the Beatles have suddenly stopped, and they showed the way that you could I- improvise. You know, obviously, Strawberry Fields Forever and all those wonderful records that I'm making, and Cream were a big influence because they showed that rock musicians weren't four ca- four chord guitar merchants or three chords. Sorry, they only <laughs> allow three chords. Uh, and that the drummers could play and that there were all these young, brilliant musicians. We were talking about earlier, the drummers in particular, people like Mitch, Mitch, Ginger Baker, who I got to know very well. Yeah. Uh, shall I tell you when I first went to see Cream rehearsing? Or uh, Yes, please. Are we yeah. jumping back a bit? No, no, it's, no, it's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I got to know Ginger because I thought he was a fantastic drummer and I'd seen him play with Graham Bond and interviewed him for DMM, and one day he rang me up and said, I'm leaving Graham Bond and I'm forming a, like a band. Uh, I say, "All oh, right, What is it? Three piece. And we've got Eric on guitar and Jack on bass. Oh, wow, wow. That's terrific. What are you going to call it? And so it's going to be called Cream. And uh, yeah. he said, do you want to come down and see us rehearsing? So uh, I ran a short story about this new formed, super group being formed. Supergroup, I called them. Because they were pretty incredible. And all mm. the managers rang up the next day. Or well, when the paper came out and said, what are you talking about? They're all signed to us. <laughs> you know, Eric Capson's playing with John Mayle, uh, Ginger Baker's with Graham Bond, and Jack Bruce's with Manfred Mann, and all the managers were furious because nobody bothered to tell them that their style players were leaving. So anyway, <laughs> Robert Stigworth came on the scene, signed them up, and uh, he told me, don't worry about it. So they were threatening to sue, actually, wow. threatening me and uh, printing all these lies, and he said, no, it's all true, and he issued a press release, and I went down to see them playing their first rehearsal. Was wow. from the old dusty hall wonder and they started playing they didn't have much gear just a uh ginger had about three drums i think just a heap of or an old drum kit in the corner and they wow. were making mistakes i remember eric and uh jack saying you made a mistake you effed that up and arguing already they'd only played three <laughs> numbers <laughs> it all began there and uh so uh, a, a Robert Stigwood was looking very alarmed. He'd just invested money in them. He was managing the Bee Gees, of course, but he'd just taken on this band. Yeah. He came up and whispered in my ear, he said, are they any good? And <laughs> I thought, I was quite uh, flattered, really, to be asked. And I, I thought, years later, if i said no, they're, they're a lot of rubbish, <laughs> I could have destroyed their career there and then. There wouldn't have been any cream. But I said, No, well, they're brilliant, don't worry. No, they're really, really good. Great. great. And, so that's really where I think started progressive rock that we were talking about because mm-hmm. of the interest in expanding and um, the albums for example were playing difficult interesting arrangements for your love and mm-hmm. um, so it's already started and then there was the underground happened when everywhere everything would pursue LSD and nightclubs yeah. like middle Earth, and uh, which I used to go to and UFO, wow. UFO in Tottenham Court Road. You'd see all these marvelous, interesting, fascinating new groups. Pink Floyd, I saw, and uh, wow. uh, the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Let uh, me think, who else was there growing up at that time? Uh, yeah, there were all these whole new bands coming on the scene. And the Jimi Hendrix experience, that's another experience. So combined with this new musicianship, the great players, the fantastic guitar players. Yeah allowed to play and make albums and then that developed further the next wave was progressive rock and that led to Emerson and Aiken Palmer and Genesis and King Crimson mm. and, and that was really was the start and I actually called it progressive rock because I'd like progressive jazz and I thought this is what these guys want to do you know they want to use their fantastic technique and their new ideas and imagination Oh, they're nice of course Forgot forgot yeah so, Brilliant. yeah, it was a very exciting time, and I encourage it as much as I could. Rushing Bell those bands, And the nice thing about Rushing about Progressive Rock, it wasn't ignored. Uh, the to public uh, took to it immediately. It was totally the major albums, the great yeah. classic uh, um, concept album, and the space to play what the hell you like, mm-hmm. take risks, and not be told by the producer or the record company what you're supposed to be doing. No record company mm. would have told Emerson, Lincoln Palmer what to play.
1: Was it true that um, ELP he had to? He had like a brass drum kit or something that weighed like two tons.
0: And they had yeah, to it wasn't brass. <laughs> no, it was uh God, it was steel or something or. Tony, I think it was that. Steel. <laughs> stainless steel, <laughs> That's it, Yeah, yeah. Because Carl was very uh, competitive. That's the thing about ELP. They were all great musicians. They'd all been in like Greg was in King Crimson, Keith Emerson was in. Uh, uh the nice which was a terrific man i used to go and see a lot and write about and uh carl of course had been with originally with chris father and the thunderbirds when he was 16. i need to learn from jazz drummers. he was a jazz huge jazz fan yeah and uh then he was playing with the atomic rooster and now i knew atomic rooster of course with vincent crane and all together once they all got together they were all very competitive because they all wanted to experiment. So Keith would have uh, wanted to play a battery of keyboards, which <laughs> rode, his, rode his night in. You know, to, <laughs> not just the hammered organ anymore, which he'd been pushing around the stage on caster wheels, apparently, with the mm. and uh, <laughs> And of course he wanted to experiment with synthesizers and huge organ keyboard setups, mm. playing classical music, rock music, all mixed together, rock and roll and jazz. And then... Greg, of course, was the middleman with a wonderful voice, playing fantastic bass guitar and, and other guitar as well, acoustic and lead guitar. And that's what made the band sound extraordinary. And then uh, Carl came along with his drum kit, and in his face of this competition from these guys, all writing and uh, creating this wonderful music, and he wanted to show what a great drummer he was, which he was, of course, great he is, pe- yeah. studied percussion and then had this uh it became very very much a show show band as you know the emerson and Lake- Palmer pioneered showmanship on stage yeah. i saw the isle of wight in 1970 the first show wow you were there were you yeah, yeah i was in front wight. row yeah. amazing i filmed it on my uh,
1: cine camera and oh, uh, that must be worth a fortune
0: <laughs> they didn't it's silent of course, unfortunately. Was, yeah. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> But I was sitting in the front row and they did this terrific set. I'd, I'd seen the rehearsal, I'd been to a rehearsal. I went to their first rehearsal and uh, Carl was told that he'd got to learn how to play 21st Century Schizoid Man by King Crimson because Greg was keen on playing that. And it's a very difficult piece to play for, especially for a drummer. And uh, I saw him rehearsing it and he was dripping in sweat I said, Oh God, that was hard, that was tough. And as it turned out, they never played it, the band. <laughs> Amazing on, on stage at the uh, Isle of Wight, they came on at the right time, and the and people say, oh, "Well, the the public were didn't weren't into progressive." Well, actually, they were very much so. They went down an absolute storm. Yeah, and uh, the material from their first album, and of course they, they climaxed the show. They had two big brass cannons on either side that they bought from a hardware shop. No, it was an antique shop in uh, <laughs> Chelsea, King's Road. The rogers have stuffed them with flash powder which you're not supposed to do <laughs> and uh put something inside it and uh, and they they touched them off at the, cl- the climax of the last number i think it was rondo uh, it's a real big climax the last number and uh, they touched them uh, at the little ports so they weren't supposed to be used as cannons at all they were no. <laughs> and there was a tremendous bang those showers of smoke and flame. Shooting out the cannon. It wasn't firing a cannonball, mercyfully, <laughs> just an explosion. But unfortunately, an Italian photographer gate crashed the stage. wanting wanted close up pictures, paparazzi. And he was standing right next to the cannon and it blew him across the stage and landed on his backside. And so that was the dramatic intro for ELP. And of course, the audience went berserk, all cheering. And that's, that's from that, as Greg Lake said later. Uh, one night they were unknown, next day they were world famous, so a lot of that. Tru- no. Can we um, just touch on if it's alright,
1: like he's the drummer's drummer isn't he, John Bonham, can we talk about John Bonham for a second?
0: John Bonham was a wonderful drummer, yeah and different style, that's the nice thing about all the rock drummers in that period, Because all the bands, they all played in their own style and sound like Keith Moon was a great drummer, mm. nobody else played like Keith as he said himself, I mean, <laughs> I'm the best Keith Moon drummer in the world, so <laughs> entirely <laughs> yeah. true, uh, Tony Williams, Miles Davis' drummer, I asked him once, well, who's his favorite drummer? He said, Keith Moon. Surprising, wow. wasn't that? Because he played free. And John Bonham, uh, I first saw playing with uh, uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, then called, uh, it was still called The the New Yorkers at the Marquee. And I'd heard all about, Jimmy Page had told me about this new band he was forming. He came into the office. Can you imagine that? Uh, they all came up to see me in the office to tell me about their new bands after Cream Hendrix Experience. Now it was Led Zeppelin. And yeah, I said, what's the name of the band? And he says, it's called Led Zeppelin. And I wrote it down in my notebook. He said, no, you spelled it wrong. It's L-E-D, <laughs> not L-E-A-D. So Jimmy told me after me. And uh, and yeah, I said, well, oh, we're playing at the Marquee. So I went to see them at the Marquee. And, uh, and I was standing next to uh, Mark. Uh, from the drummer from Rare Bird, remember him, young drummer from yeah. Rare Bird, Mark. Got this, Mark Ashton, and we watched John Bonham play for the first time, and he was so powerful and exciting and driving. And Mark said, "Ah, oh, he he's unbelievable. He said, I'm giving up." And he said, he's, <laughs> "At that point, he stopped playing the drums. <laughs> I can't play the drums after seeing John Bonham."
1: It's interesting that Hendrix and Bonham probably. Made more
0: musicians quit than start. Yeah. <laughs> <I think it's- laughs> well, one, one story that uh, John told me later when I got to know him became good friends, actually. He's a really nice guy, fantastic drummer. And I went on tour with him mercifully, because I'd given him some good reviews. And Peter Grant was very pleased the way I wrote about the band. So it uh, yeah. wasn't planned, it just happened that way. And uh, I got to know John. And, uh, he told me when he first started playing in Birmingham, in the Midlands, and he'd go into a studio and start hammering away really loud. And the engineer would say, You can't play like that in the studio, you'll destroy the microphones. There's no future in playing drums like that. <laughs> You're going the wrong way about it. This young man. <laughs> <laughs> he was banned from the studio, banned from lots of pubs, and used to wreck other people's drunkards. He had a habit of going into a pub and seeing a band play and say, Oh, can I sit in, mate? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> In a Birmingham accent, not quite the an accent, <laughs> and they say reluctantly, "Oh, okay." And uh, he'd hammer away on the drum kit, and a wreckage pile of the snare drum gone, head gone, bass drum on the floor, falling over, and uh, so he was banned from lots of pubs from playing. And he told me that years later, uh, when he had a load of gold albums and silver, platinum albums, he went to see uh, this. Uh, drum teacher who told him there's no future in playing loud and he showed he said here this is the future of playing loud <laughs> <laughs> platinum led Zeppelin album brilliant so that was brilliant. his revenge but no he was such fantastic and, uh, i was very fortunate to be on stage with led Zeppelin
1: and watching playing close up yeah. that's amazing so you've had found- the British Invasion then you had the prog rock of the 70s and then in the 80s you joined Kerrang! so you had the new wave of British metal as well what was it like to go from prog rock to metal was it an easy transition for you to get to or was it kind of you had to get used to the rock kind of side of stuff that's heavier than yes
0: it was uh, difficult at first I did have to get used to it I felt I knew about uh, the the first wave of uh, heavy metal because when I was on Melody Maker bands like Iron Maiden were just coming in and then I left EMM mainly because of uh well, I've been there for 15 or 16 years, and it was wonderful. But I thought, I've got to do something else. I can't just stay on Melody Maker the rest of my life and be writing about Genesis when all the other kids are watching about something in rap music or something grunge or something totally new. You realize there's a point where maybe you should move on. Because, as I say, when I joined Melody Maker, there were people who have been there since 1936. <laughs> <laughs> writing about British dance fans, so I didn't really want to be in that situation. And then I was offered a job on a new paper called Musicians Only, and uh, that's a nice thing to be uh, assistant editor. Um, yeah. And we had our own st- uh, office in Charing Cross Road, and uh, that was great fun. But sadly, there was a journalist strike, and uh, the paper was off the streets for several weeks and months while the, uh, the unions and the, the empires uh, were sorting out a paid And, of course, when they came back, the circulation had vanished. The paper had disappeared from the stands, and they closed the paper. So I was then made redundant, which was no fun at all, uh, apart from getting a redundancy payment. And uh, I sat around thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? The Melody Maker didn't want me back, by the way, (laughs) which I thought they might, but they didn't, because they were moving on into pastures new. By the way, I got a great exclusive story with the Rolling Stones. Uh, okay, I, I became freelance for a while, freelancing. Yeah, because I knew the Stones, and uh, they invited me to America, to see them preparing for a tour, yeah. and uh, it was in Boston, and uh, I went to the the secret venue where they were re- rehearsing, and uh, with Bill and uh, Keith and Mick, Charlie, and um, now nah, who else was there? Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ronnie, Ronnie Wood, Ronnie. Yeah, see him. And I had the exclusive access to the Stones before they did a big show in New York, and uh, they invited me upstairs, and they played some numbers for me. I was sitting on the floor, listening to the Rolling Stones. Wow! An audience would want. I thought, what a fantastic story. This is great. And I rang the melody maker, when I got back. Said, I've got this great scoop. And I had a melody maker. Nobody else is allowed to see him rehearsing. And the editor, who was <laughs> sure remained nameless, said, so, "Oh no, we want somebody from our office to do it. We don't want you." <laughs> oh, thank you. Fifteen years of work on melody maker. That was their attitude. They were resentful because uh, I'd got it and one of their staff hadn't. <laughs> so I offered it to Record their rival, and meet they they ran it. But well, that's the perils really? of being a freelancer. And after that, uh, yeah. The, while I was on Musicians Only, I'd, I'd written about Iron Maiden, who I really liked. I thought a great young British hard rock band. And as it turned out, I got to know them. Well, Steve, the later, the later drummer, Nico McRain. And it turned out, would you believe, you know, progressive rock by this time, we're talking about late 70s, early 80s, mm. it was a death sentence. I think that's why <laughs> the m MM m didn't want me anymore. They, they associated me with Genesis, and, yes, right. the P and they were, persona non grata and uh, you just didn't write about them anymore you know it's like punk rock or else <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah i uh wrote about iron maiden and uh, i went to see them they're really nice guys and would you believe it guess what music they liked jethro tell <laughs> <laughs> awesome you get more prob rock than that <laughs> oh that was a funny thing it was i uh, interviewed i did try and write about uh, punk rock actually i did Generation X. I liked them. I thought they were a great band, and I liked Billy. Billy Idol. I interviewed him, yeah. and I thought they were a great band, very exciting. And uh, yeah, oh, that leading to oh yes, that's right. There was a punk rock magazine called Sniffing Glue. I don't know if you remember that. I've heard of it. Yeah, I, uh, Sniffing Glue. So, uh, and he was running the, the first kind of uh, fanzine mm. for punk. So, I, as a fellow journalist, uh, I had to write about. Sex Pistols who I went to see and reviewed as well lied. and uh, I interviewed Mark Penny of was uh, sniffing go the ultimate voice of punk rock I was doing a picture on him and I said well kind of what bands did you like and he said oh I love Emerson making so <laughs> <laughs> the secret was revealed all these punk people were all secret prog rock bands
1: <laughs> amazing
0: what well, I turn up for the books. I'm I'm barred from writing about uh, music <laughs> on, for, on the MM. And and that all these guys are actually progressive rock fans secretly. So, <laughs> oh, that's the other funny thing. Okay. John Lloyd, Johnny Ron mm. became a great friend with Keith Emerson. So that's the ultimate irony. <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, um, should we say sixty
1: year music career of journalism, is there an artist that came out that you really thought was going to do well but actually just didn't and just faded into obscurity like an album or a band that you thought this is brilliant
0: and this is the future that's a very good question actually yeah there were musicians I did try and encourage and didn't always make it Uh, most of them did I have to say (laughs) like Genesis who I went to see when they first played in uh, a little I saw Genesis playing upstairs at Ronnie Scott's Club you know the small room upstairs and uh, promotional gig. And uh, the first time I'd seen them, I was with Peter Franson, actually. Peter and I were having a drink in La Chasse. And we said, let's go down to Ronnie's and see who's playing upstairs. Upstairs at Ronnie's was a venue. And there was this strange band playing there The a bloke standing with a bass drum, playing, <laughs> standing up and singing with a bass drum. And uh, we discovered there were Genesis. They were called Genesis. That's the first time we saw them. They were very mm-hmm. successful. So I can't <laughs> say that there were failures. <laughs> Most of <laughs> the people I saw did t- turn out to be huge successes. Uh, Austin, at, uh, like Mark Bowden, of course. Uh, oh, I love Mark. We haven't talked about Mark, but anyway, but just another time. Uh, I did like Peter Banks. The guitar player was, uh, was yes. I thought he was a great guitar player. He was on the first Yes album, two years albums, oh, And really uh, nice. unfortunately, he was let go by the band. Often uh, musicians tend to make a fatal error. Drums, lead guitar players—they try and walk before uh, they want to be stars too soon. Yeah, they want to be individuals. They want to be have the limelight on them too much, mm-hmm. you know. And that offends the two guys in the background who are actually writing the songs, <laughs> and they're really the stars of the band. And they run the band. So it's—I've—I've I've known this happen to other friends' bands who aren't famous at all, but well, let this happen. The worst thing a drummer can do, by the way, is to put lights in your bass drum or have a drum riser <laughs> built by your dad. So maybe you do that, you get fired by the lead guitar player. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Peter, uh, who was a great guitar player, I thought, those first two albums, and had a unique sound. And uh, one of his fans was actually Pete Townsend. Townsend thought he was a good guitar player. But he mm-hmm. tried too hard. He was throwing the guitar up in the air and catching it. And uh, I remember Chris and and John of uh, yes, calling me one day say, "Well, your friends are Peter. Can you tell me just a shorten the <laughs> solo? that's going on for fifteen minutes, no? <laughs> and this is like a band that's still making its way. It hasn't had any hits yet. You can't mm-hmm. really overdo it that much." So Peter made a mistake, tried to be the star too soon, and uh, was let go. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did form his own band, Flash later, which was very good, I thought. Uh, yeah. But it was a downward spiral after that. So. He never really was fully appreciated. I thought he was a great guitar player and he should have done. And I did try and help him as much as I could. So, yeah, that's the story. One, one musician I thought should have done really well, but didn't quite make it.
1: Can we um, just briefly talk about Mark and how we've brought him up? Like, I just think he was probably one of the best. I still feel underrated artists. Like People just sort of say, you know, Big Curly Air, Lamb Voice. But he wrote some of the most amazing songs in the 70s, I think, especially Hot
0: Love. Yes, that's right. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Mark. I always thought has a tremendous potential. Like such a funny guy, and uh, I first met him in the off- in the corridor, at to Maker office. He came up to. Uh, he was a very great self-publicist. I was saying <laughs> like drummers shouldn't put lights in their bass drums or try and promote themselves too much. But uh, Mark knew all about self-promotion, and he was so charming and funny and articulate, and uh, but totally ignored mostly. By the record companies and the music business, people quite disparaging about I remember publishers rather, other artists saying, "Oh, Mark Button, soppy kid, you know he's like they didn't take him seriously at all. This curly here, cheeky kid, and uh, <laughs> who thought he was a star, and he was a star, you yeah. know, he was born to be a star. really, wasn't he? And I first saw him uh, running down the corridor in the in the IPC office in Fleet Street when he was going heading for Disc, which was her sister paper. And he wanted to see Penny Valentine, was a, a wonderful journalist and uh, a great uh, pop writer. And he was going to for an interview. And I just sort of made a joke about him. I said, oh, you look like Pansy Potter, the Strongman's daughter." I don't know if you remember the character in uh, Bandy no. and b so, It's a long while ago. He looked like a cartoon character, I remember. With big hair, big frizzy. <laughs> so he turned around and looked at me and then laughed. And uh, after that, we became friends. He came to see me instead of Penny. <laughs> Amazing. But the first time I actually uh, was aware of him, I reviewed his single he did. I'm uh, just looking up it up mm-hmm. actually. My book of a it. thousand words here. Yeah. It was uh, his first solo. Oh, it's The Wizard. That's right. i have forgotten it. Wow. 1965. I heard this single called The Wizard, which is on Decker, when Mark was doing solo singles. So. I, I liked it. I thought it was really interesting and great records. So, uh, and then after that, he joined John's Children, which mm-hmm. was uh, Simon Napier-Bell's uh, band, Rival to the Who, or Bear, I think. <laughs> and they were on track records. Uh, notorious, for terrible, state, uh, violent mm-hmm. stage shows. And I interviewed John's Children in our local pub, The Red Lion, which is where I did all my interviews in The Red Lion, <laughs> and, not around, and uh, with John's Children. We all sat at the table. Mark didn't drink then, by the way. Didn't like beer or nor did Mick Jagger. He hated drinking. Hmm. He said, I can't imagine myself drinking a part of anything, let alone beer. And he (laughs) said (laughs) to But Mark was uh, I mean remember I told you that Eric Clapton always looked slightly out of place in the Arbus, he had a little I'm not with them atmosphere vibe. And the same with Mark sitting with John's children. They're all very up and loud, Hmm. boisterous. And Mark was sitting there quietly and looking a bit glum and fed up. And I discovered why. It was because they weren't playing his songs. He'd written on his stumps. <laughs> he, he wanted to be the songwriter. Even then, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He wasn't going to stay with John's children, although they got a record deal and were making records in, in the papers. And they'd done that uh, Desdemona, which I yeah. think Mark actually wrote, actually. Yes, he did write that. So, uh, But he wanted more songs uh, being covered by the group. Uh, he wasn't wealthy with John's Children and the next time I saw him he came back to the pub and turned up with the manager guy and he said uh, oh I've left John's Children now I'm forming my own group I said hey what's it going to be called just a big group and you've got drums and things he said no it's just two of us two of you yeah. he said it's going to be the biggest band in the world I said well how's that he said it's called Tyrannosaurus Rex <laughs> <laughs> so although it was a small group it's big on ambition have <laughs> you got the gear together dates and things are going to play at the uh, what's that place in Covent Garden yes. Middle Earth places like that and uh, he says yeah we've got all the gear together we've been to Warwoods. we bought it all in <laughs> Well, what I did what did you buy a, it said, uh, oh, well, a tin a toy drum kit and uh, a Bon Tempe electric p- keyboard and that's the cheapest organ you can buy and well it's sounded terrible but it's <laughs> About 20 quid in walls, I think. So, and bongos. I went to see the rehearsing at, uh, at Mark's. I lived in a tiny little flat in Notting Hill Gate on the top floor. And uh, he had this uh, one-room flat with his girlfriend, June. And uh, I went up there for dinner with uh, June and Mark. And he, had, he said, do you want to see my studio? I said, yeah, yeah. And he pulled uh, a curtain aside, and it was a little cubicle, and it's called Toadstool Studio that's where he wrote all his songs and played acoustic guitar. And it was like the size of a telephone box. He had his own <laughs> studio. He said, do you want to play the bongos? I said, yeah, okay. So I played the bongos on Deborah Westman, not on the final record, but I played with uh, Mark when we did, he was rehearsing Deborah. So I couldn't be on the record. That's good enough for me. Don't <laughs> bongos. Yeah. Deborah.
1: <laughs> Music journalism. Um, was obviously quite a thing in the in the 60s 70s and 80s and it was quite a sort of target for people to go to to get an opinion. Do you think it's as important today as it was back in the day?
0: Probably not. No, I think it's all down to the internet, isn't that? People have mm-hmm. access to everything. Music and and all bands have their own websites now and you could you find out when Sam Soto was uh, born or where they were married or what was their first album. It's all available. Cost mass which we used to glean for if we were lucky, a printed EMI press release, you know, typewritten one page. Potspot did his life. <laughs> 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 you get a, a handout so, sent around so. by a motorcycle messenger it's some days later. So it was yeah. already slow permitted, uh, and permitted. And I was on the music page, for the weeklies, but we did it. You know, There was a big team, vast team of people producing that weekly. Now you can all sit at home like we're doing now. And I could go on my other computer and look up Wikipedia or Spotify and find out stuff. I was looking up my first favorite record something They're all on Spotify. So <laughs> so instead of waiting for a motorbike messenger to deliver the a, a, a latest Beatles album and, uh, and play it once or twice and then wait for a press release and then make long phone calls. No tape recorder, by the way. It didn't have a tape recorder. Right. Everything was a scribbly notes, ink. You were covered in ink, basically, waiting for a motorbike messenger. But now, of course, yeah, it's totally changed. And I, I'm not sure. I mean, there are still some great music publications. Mojo, I think, is still happening. Mm-hmm. I've written for Mojo. And uh, Record Collector is a great magazine. That's a real specialist magazine. That I've written for them too. And mm-hmm. uh, there were specialist magazines like Rhythm, the drummer's magazine, certainly no longer. And the one I did like was, um, well, there's a few that I've been writing for once, gone. They've all disappeared.
1: Yeah, Q's gone as well,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It shows you how soon you forget. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you can't even remember the names of the magazines I used to write for every week.
1: Because <laughs> there's so many. Well, um, you've written many wonderful books. Um your John Bonham book's great as well, and your Viv Stanshaw book is great as well. Um, if people want to get those books and find out more about you, where's the best place to go?
0: Uh, to, well, I do have, uh, I think I'm on Wikipedia, actually, and I have got my own website. It's called Chris Welch Online, um, uh, .com. So You can find them there. And uh, let me see. Well, there's the publishers, of course, like the Keith Emerson book. It has a, I can tell you who they're published by. Rocket 88 is the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, but she sounds like the very first rock and roll record, doesn't it? Rocket 80 Yeah. Uh, So that was published uh, last November, around about my birthday, actually. That was the last book I did. That was exhausting work, very tiring, very intense, very emotional. I'll put a link to your website in the description so people can find it.
1: Chris, it's been amazing talking to you today. I could do it for hours, to be honest with you.
0: (laughs) i better stop talking probably. Chatting Tracks. Let's Talk Music.